As we continue our series through the Heidelberg Catechism, we will arrive this evening at Lord's Day number 7. And for this, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and verses 1, 2, and 3. Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 1, 2, and 3. And this, once again, is not human literature, not even in part, but holy and entirely God's holy inspired word. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. As far the reading of God's holy word, may the Lord add his blessing unto the preaching thereof. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last time we have learned what kind of a Savior fallen man needs for redemption. It had to be a true and righteous man, because only man could pay the price for a man's sin. But at the same time, it had to be true God, in order to bear the whole weight of God's wrath. And we have learned, of course, who this Redeemer is, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, who is, as question Answer 15 explains, a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. And now as the question of a Savior who can pay for our sins is settled, we want to know who can be saved and how can they be saved. And our line of questioning this evening begins with question answer number 20, which takes care of the question, who will be saved? And it asks, are all people then saved through Christ, just as they were lost through Adam? Well, we say that's a fair enough question. And here comes the answer, no, only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Jesus Christ and accept all his benefits. So right in the beginning here of Lord's Day 7, we are told that salvation is not universal, that it is not an automatism for all men, but that it is only for some. And Scripture is very clear about this fact that there are people who will remain under God's judgment eternally. For example, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a, sh a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Very clear statement that clearly speaks against universal salvation. Or take the description of the final judgment before the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20, where we read this about the opening of the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we can say and clearly see that salvation of sinners is not and by no means universal. But then we ask, of course, how can a person receive redemption? How can, if ever, how can a man pursue so great a salvation? And the Heidelberg Catechism introduces us to the means, to the instrument of redemption, to the instrument how we can get saved. And this means is faith. As question answer 20 tells us that only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. You see, Lord's Day 7 is all about faith. This instrument through which God saves sinners, through which God separates the redeemed from the reprobate who remain in their sins. And we will explore this evening, Lord willing, the question, what is saving faith under three aspects? The first one is faith required. The second one is faith explained. And the third one is faith applied. And I will try to be as precise as I can possibly be. Because this is a very, very important issue that many, even in some so-called conservative churches, are not getting entirely right. We have therefore to be very biblical and very precise. This is not an issue for cavalier conversation. It is a life or death issue, and not only that. It is an issue of eternal life or eternal death, and therefore not to be tampered with and not to be taken lightly. This is important for the people of God to hear, and I'm very grateful for the Heidelberg Catechism to have it prepared for us providentially in such a clear way. Beloved, as we just heard, not all people will be saved. In Adam's sin, we all fell and lost all original righteousness and thus all favor with God. I hope you hear me. We lost all favor with God. In order for fallen man to escape judgment, he has to find shelter under the righteousness and under the atonement of another. There's no hope for man in himself. He has to find righteousness. He has to find redemption in the power, in the redemption, in the atonement of another. And this other, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
Now you have to understand that there's a different kind of connection between us and Adam compared to us and Christ. Because that's how people come to the false conclusion of universalism or universal salvation. They say it says all fell in Adam and all come alive in Jesus Christ. Well, those are two different alls and I can explain to you why. Because our connection with with, with Adam was a natural one. Our connection with Adam was a natural. Everybody who is born is born in Adam. Adam was appointed the federal head of all mankind. So every person that is born, let's say automatically, is under the federal headship of Adam. So this is a natural connection. So all men are covered under Adam and thus also under his fall and under his sin, as we often call original sin. With Christ it is not so. The connection that man has with Christ is not a natural connection. We need, as it says, to be actively engrafted into him. And I'm very grateful that the Heidelberg Catechism uses exactly this language from Scripture. We are not naturally grown out of the tree Christ. We are grown out of the tree Adam. And those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who become, who move, who transfer from under the headship of Adam to under the headship of Christ are being plucked out and plucked into Christ, engrafted. Which means that we are not natural descendants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are engrafted. Something has to happen for a human being to transfer from, from Adam into Christ. And therefore, these two alls are different alls. All those who are in Adam compared to all those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the instrument that makes this transfer happen is faith. The instrument through which we counted from reprobates first and then into those who are redeemed is faith. Through faith we are grafted into Christ, which means, because we use these terms and often we don't know exactly what they mean, and that's why we have to be so precise. Theology has to be precise. Our people have to know the truth. No half-baked platitudes. We need to know the sure truth of the Bible. So what does it mean to be grafted into Christ? It means that we become part of his spiritual body on earth, the true church of Jesus Christ, and we henceforth live in an organic union and communion with Christ spiritually, which means we are taken out of Adam. We're taken out of this fallen flesh and we're spiritually plugged in to the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were. We become part of his body on earth, out of the body of Adam that is fallen, into the body of Christ, and we are connected in union and communion with him. Do you hear me? We are in union and communion with Christ. We are not just affirming something. We are becoming something new. We are one not only with Him, 
But if you look around in the pews, we are also in Him, one with each other, one body. And therefore, for the life of me, I cannot understand why in the body of Jesus Christ, there is so much bickering and infighting and hostility. If we are truly one body... Because this is how you see that you are truly in Jesus Christ if you love the brethren. This is the sign. If you hate the brethren, if you're only annoyed by your brethren, if you have a low view of the church, you are not in Jesus Christ. But you're still in Adam, who is from the beginning on. In the birth that you have in Adam, an enemy of the church, of Jesus Christ. We are connected with Jesus Christ. Through Him and from Him, we like a branch that receives the nutrients uh, from the stem. We receive our nutrients. We receive our life. We receive our joy. We receive our hope. We receive all the blessings from the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, verse 5. I am divine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And of course, you know this. If you cut off a piece from a tree and you throw it by the roadside, it's going to die. There's no life. And so a Christian or a person cannot live, not truly live, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are in Christ, then he supplies the righteousness that Adam failed to deliver. And we are transferred from the natural headship of Adam to the spiritual headship of Christ. With Adam there is no righteousness. With Adam there is no atonement. So we are transferred under the umbrella, under the shield, Jesus Christ, who not only shields us from the wrath of God by absorbing him, uh, it himself, but he also provides our righteousness through his perfect life. And that's what I keep saying. That's the double benefit, the, the duplex beneficium. That in Christ we not only receive the righteousness in his life, but also the atonement in his death but only through the instrument, which is faith. Now, in a certain aspect or respect, we could call faith a condition for salvation. But I have to be quick to say that this is only in a certain respect because the term of condition must not be misunderstood as something that we can provide out of our own strength. That, of course, is foolishness. We cannot provide anything pleasing unto God out of our fallen hearts. And that's why some are quite hostile and with some justification to calling faith a condition because it could lure us into the thinking that we actually provide something that is not being given by God to begin with. We have already heard that the only reason that we believe is because God first has given us a new heart in regeneration, in the birth from above. Unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God, as we read in John chapter 3. 
Yes, yes, faith is a condition for salvation, but a condition which we can only fulfill by the sovereign grace of God and not out of our own strength. It is not a work, lest anyone should boast. John chapter 3, verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Faith, therefore, is not an antecedent condition as something that we bring in order to initiate the process of salvation. Quite the opposite. It is a consequent condition which we can only fulfill because God has first given us a new heart. So it is not us who initiate salvation, but God. And without the new birth, there will be no saving faith. But one thing is clear, and it is that, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Bible is very clear about this. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Faith is therefore a sine qua non, an essential requirement for the salvation of a sinner. Without faith, no salvation. Now, all of this, of course, begs the question, what is saving faith? And that leads us to our second point, faith explained. Question answer, or question 21, asks exactly this question. What is true faith? And here's the answer. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the Gospel that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merit. That is the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. And that seems like a lot of information. But let us take it apart piece by piece. It is not as complicated as it might sound. The Heidelberg Catechism basically differentiates between three stages of faith. And the first one is what is described as a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. Now, in order to, uh, to hold true everything that God has revealed, we have to know it. And therefore, it is important that this Word of God gets out. And that's why we do missions. The Word has to go out. People don't just see, sit under a tree somewhere in a faraway land and suddenly they believe. There is no belief without the means of the Word of God being communicated to them. Now, there's two ways of communication or revelation of God. The one is through nature. I don't have to explain much. Through nature, every human being knows that God is. We can see some attributes of this God, of this uh, invisible God. We know, every person knows that they are sinners. It says in Romans chapter 1 that they have no excuse. For the wrath of God is revealed to all unrighteousness and ungodliness of man. 
who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So everybody knows this. What they don't know through general revelation is the gospel. So in a sense, they know the problem, but not the solution. So there's a world out there that knows that they're guilty, but nobody brings them the truth. Nobody brings them the antidote. There are millions and millions of people in India who haven't heard the gospel yet, for example. There's millions and millions in Europe. There's millions and millions and even billions all over the world who haven't heard a truth to believe. But the special revelation, of course, is God's word. Here he describes to us the way of salvation. The very reason why I can explain it to you this evening, the very reason that we even have a Heidelberg Catechism is that we have the Word of God. Now, he talks about the sure knowledge, and I have to say that the English word knowledge does not quite represent the German word erkenntnis, because the original has the word erkenntnis in the, in the original. But there seems to be, honestly, I thought about it for a long time, there seems to be no better word in the English language, so knowledge uh, is all right. The original German word adds depth to this knowledge. It, it has the, the spin of, of, of some form of deeper insight. So we, we, we have to know the truths. We have to uh, know the truth that leads to saving faith. And this is the first stage of faith. And the Reformers called it notitia, knowledge, just to know uh, the truth. That is the first stage. And, of course, this first stage is not enough. If it was enough to just know the truth, I knew how we need to do evangelism. We buy radio time. And we just put the truth out there so everybody knows it and then they're automatically saved. No, 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 no. That is not enough to uh, be saved. Because the Heidelberg Catechism rightly adds that we must hold them as true. And this is the second stage of faith. And the Reformers called this ascensus or ascent. Or also you can call this kind of faith historical faith. Of course, this is a step up in the right direction. Not only do you now know the truth, but you agree with the truth. You assent to the truth. And uh, you, you would even maybe defend uh, this truth. But this second step could also describe a person or the faith of a person who knows Christian doctrine like the palm of their hand, in and out, who agrees with it and defends it and even teaches others or even preaches it. He knows the catechism. He agrees to it. He goes to pro-life rallies and is very active in his church. And yet, he might be a reprobate on his way to eternal condemnation. I've seen it with my own eyes. In my years as a pastor, I've seen many a person. Far too many. Church members. Deacons. Elders and even ministers 
plenty of professors who turned out to be unconverted reprobates. Many of them were outwardly very conservative. They stood for all the right things. They would vigorously even defend, in many cases, the Reformed faith. They had notitia, they had knowledge. They knew the truth. Sometimes they knew the truth very well. They had assented to this truth, and yet they turned out to be unconverted reprobates. As these two, knowledge and assent, still do not constitute saving faith. It is the heresy sometimes called Sandemanianism after a uh, promoter of this heresy that we just assent to the truth and that makes us Christians. And I have to tell you a hard truth now. Churches in North America, churches in the West are filled with people who have knowledge filled with people who have assent, but who are on their way to hell. These are the sermons that nobody likes to preach, but they have to be preached every once in a while. Listen carefully as to what the first part of Answer 21 says. True faith is, and these two words, not only a sure knowledge, by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word. So the Heidelberg Catechism rightly tells us, while these two things are good, they are not yet saving faith, because it is not only knowledge and assent, as strong as this assent might be. Now, look, you know people who are very strong opinionated when it comes to politics. They would stand up for their political opinion all day long while they're unbelievers. So if the world can do this, why not in religious things? Why can they not take a side in the religious spectrum and still be unconverted? It says that while sure knowledge and assent are important requirements for saving faith, they are yet not enough because there's a third element as it continues, it is also a whole-hearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. My dear friends, this and this only is the saving faith that only the Holy Spirit works in the person in regeneration. Such a person not only knows the truth, such a person not only fully assents to this truth, but this person also wholeheartedly and lastingly puts their hope in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. Zacharias Ursinus, the main author of the Heidelberg Catechism, describes this saving faith with these words. The difference, he says, or formal character of saving faith is the confidence and application which everyone makes to himself of the free remission of sins by and for the sake of Christ. 
The, pro the property or peculiar character of this faith is trust and delight in God on account of this great benefit. End of quote. So the difference between a merely historical faith that knows and holds true the doctrines, now a regenerated man appropriates and takes possession of this gospel. He lays hold of Christ as his Savior and throws himself to his feet in order to receive redemption, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. And I hope you young people are listening to me. It is a very sad state of affair when one has to be a minister these days and meet people and go to official functions and then see that many of children of the church are walking away from the faith because they were never told the true gospel of Jesus Christ. I have run into many a re later returning by God's grace to the Reformed faith. A child that told me I was 20 years in a Reformed church and never heard the gospel. My dear young friend, you're hearing the gospel tonight. You will have no more excuse to not walk into the arms or run into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because true faith runs to Jesus Christ. It lays hold of Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be a special vocabulary. It doesn't have to be a special movement. It just lays hold of Christ. It falls on its knees before the Lord Jesus Christ and pleads for forgiveness. You see, this faith is not just a having. It is not just, I have the Christian faith or I have salvation. It is not an adding. You don't add Christ to a bunch of other things. Like a country club membership or a gym membership. It's not an adding of Christ. It is a being. You are a Christian. You don't just add Christianity. You don't just have Christianity. It's impossible. You either are a Christian or you are a reprobate. Being a Christian is a being, not a having or an agreeing. Like being a registered voter, no, that's not enough. It's not adding Christ to a thousand other things. It is submitting to Christ with all the thousands of things that you are and that you have. Everything must be submitted. Everything must be subservient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not what you have. It is what you are, if indeed you are a true Christian. That is the true faith. Jonathan Edwards, arguably the best philosopher and theologian that has ever walked on, on American soil, gives us a little hint how we know that we have this true faith. And he says, of all the faculties of our soul whether it be the mind, whether it be the emotions, or whether it be the will or volition, he says, you see it best, not in your emotions, but you see it in your will. Do you want to do what is honoring to Christ? Is that the desire of your heart? And yes, I know we're fallen. I know we're still struggling. But in your core, who do you want to please? Who do you want to be glorified? Who do you want to serve if you had it your way? 
And the answer for a true Christian can only be Christ, Christ, and Christ alone. And it has a characteristic, this saving faith. It has the characteristic that, that separates it from just a temporary excitement or a temporary faith in that it is not temporary, in that it remains. Yes, there are ups and downs, we know that. But in the long run, the Christian faith is something that remains, or it was just a temporary faith, as we see, for example, in Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower. Talking about that which was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately he falls away. I have known many people like that, too many, far too many, who go to a crusade or to a sermon, or who hear a sermon and they're all in tears and excited and they thrive, and they want to go out and evangelize and tell everybody who would listen about the great love of God and Jesus Christ. Six months later, you meet them, and you see that they're all back to the ways of the world. And you ask them, what has happened? And they tell you, you know, Christianity wasn't just, it wasn't for me. And off they go, never to be seen Again, this temporary faith is not saving faith. It is first temporary. That is the surest characteristic that it is not true saving faith. It, may, it might seem like rapid, rapid growth in a very short time, but it folds under persecution. You see, true faith will strengthen under persecution. False faith will fold. And in His mercy, God, I think, is going to cleanse His church in the West. He will turn up. He will crank up the heat. He will crank up the opposition. And we will see a cleansed church. Because those with temporary faith, those with just historical faith, those with an unreal faith, they will fold. And they will walk away from the house of the Lord. And also, temporary faith usually lacks humility. Because it has never seen the presence of God. It has never accepted the Lordship of Christ, but has remained tall and upright in its stature, rebellious in its core. My dear friends, true faith prevails. It has its ups and downs, and there's a reason why we see all these losers in the Bible. They're just as much losers as we are. Peter, who denies his Lord... Samson, who does all the ill effects that he does. All those who seem to be great men of the Bible have their low moments. King David with Bathsheba and with Uriah. All these people are there for a reason. Not that we ever ought to think that we have to be perfect. But you see what the difference is between David and, uh, for example, Damas. Uh, David came back. And Damas most likely didn't. Temporary 
faith. Now this brings us to the question whether assurance is a required element of saving faith because in the English version one might almost be tempted to think that because it says it's not only a sure knowledge by which I hold is true all that God has revealed to us in his word it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but to me also Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. So the question uh, is before us now, is assurance, assurance of salvation, a required element of saving faith? While I know that some tend to believe that, I want to answer with a loud and resounding no. We have been saved by grace alone through faith alone, and not by grace alone through faith alone plus assurance alone. The thief on the cross had not a speck of any assurance when he turned to Jesus and asked him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And yet Jesus answers him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In Matthew chapter 26, when instituting the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus said this to the disciples, the evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And now listen to what comes next in verse 22 of chapter 26. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? The Lord Jesus Christ, without doubt, was here talking about a reprobate. And here all the disciples ask, Is it me? Am I the reprobate? So not much of an assurance of salvation there. But also for those who subscribe to the three forms of unity, let me direct you to the Canons of Door, chapter 1, and paragraph 12, where it talks about the assurance of, of election, and where it says, Assurance of this, their eternal and unchangeable election to salvation, is given to the chosen in due time though by various stages and in different measure. Such assurance comes not by inquisitive searching into the hidden and deep things of God. This tries to describe trying to find the secret will of God, whether I'm written in the book of life, but by noticing within themselves with spiritual joy and holy delight the unmistakable fruits of election pointed out in God's word, such as a true faith in Christ, a childlike fear of God, a godly sorrow for their sins, and a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. So this is the same three forms of unity. You can't have it both ways. And they're very clear here that this salvation might come in due time and it might come in different measures to each person. I'm just telling you this because as a pastor, one runs into many a troubled Christian who struggle with the assurance of salvation and think if they don't have assurance, they will certainly go to hell. Well, you will have probably a miserable life if you don't use the means of grace in order to gain assurance, but you will still end up in the presence of God and you will be looked back and shed many a tear because you have used the time and you have abused the time with navel-gazing and with constantly asking the same question instead of just looking away and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But you will be in heaven. Because when I ask you, 
Do you want to be saved? That's usually the question I ask when somebody comes. Reverend, I don't know whether I'm saved. I don't know whether I'm in Christ. And I ask them, do you want to be in Christ? Do you want to be finding him? And they look at you with tears in their eyes and they say, yes, Reverend, more than anything in life. And I say, go home in peace. I have no worries about you. But let me call my next witness. witness. The Westminster Divines the best theologians of the 17th century in Europe, Westminster Confession, chapter 18 and section 3, where he talks about assurance, and it says, This infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith. You hear that? Does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of the ordinary means, attain thereunto. What are the ordinary means? The Word of God being preached, the sacraments properly administered and received, prayer, the study of the Word of God. These are the ordinary means of grace. These are the means that God has given us to strengthen our faith. Now, if you lament about your lack of assurance, but you don't even want to be here twice on the Lord's Day, I cannot help you. If you look down on the Lord's Supper, if you don't study your Bible, if you don't beseech God, if you don't seek to live a God-pleasing life, what do you expect? With your sin, you are separating yourself from the presence of God more and more. And then you complain that you have no assurance. I cannot help you. You need to use the means that God has given you. And there is also an Article 4 which I want to show you in Westminster Confession 18. And this might be a comfort to some. It says, True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving uh, of it, by falling into some special sin, which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which by the operation of the Spirit this assurance may in due time, here you have it again, in due time, I think they wrote off from each other, in due time be revived and by the which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. You will never be utterly despaired. You might walk through dark valleys. I have seen people extremely troubled in body and in soul by a lack of assurance. But they never lost that seed of faith and were in due time restored to live a normal Christian life. And therefore I say no. Assurance of salvation is not an essential part of true and saving faith. And then we have our last point. Faith is required. Faith has been explained, but faith has to be applied. The question is then, will just any faith do? People in this world talk a lot about faith. 
They will, they will use the term faith very loosely. Some say, as long as you believe in something, you're good. Or somebody will say, I have faith in you. Or some Christians will even make foolish statements of a quasi-prophetic nature. I just know in my heart that this will happen. Be careful with that. You know nothing apart from the Word of God. But this approach to faith has nothing to do with biblical faith, with saving faith. Biblical and saving faith must refer to the truth in God's special revelation. Must refer to His Word. Faith must refer to something. And question answer 22 puts it this way. What then must the Christian believe? And then the answer, all that is promised us in the gospel, a summary of which is taught us in the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. And then the Heidelberg Catechism refers us rightly so to the Apostles' Creed, which we have professed earlier in this service, which I'm sure we often profess without even thinking twice about what we're saying. But nevertheless, it will stay in our hearts. It will stay in the hearts of our children. And maybe even if they should walk away for a time, at some point they will remember the articles of faith. When God in his mercy lets them hit rock bottom, and then they will remember. They will remember the law of God. They will remember the Apostles' Creed. They will remember the doxology. And they will remember their God. And they will come back. And they will be received readily by the Lord Jesus Christ with open arms and hopefully also by his people. Beloved, we will look into the Apostles' Creed in weeks to come, Lord willing, in order to make sure that we understand the essentials of the Christian faith. But believing in Christ is not hard if he gives you a heart that wants to. May God help us all to run to him tonight. Let us pray together. Almighty God, our most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, oh, we thank you for your clear words, and we thank you also that we have confessions and catechisms that so clearly teach us systematically your wonderful truth, your wonderful word. Oh, Lord, help us that we do not listen to the uh, whispers of the evil one, that we don't make salvation a complicated thing, but like children, that we run to the Lord Jesus Christ, have our sins forgiven, and follow him for the rest of our lives with all that is within us. Oh, Lord, help our children, the younger generation, but help also our elderly, all of us, that we walk in your ways, and that faith will be the driving force for everything that we do, for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray.